Howdy. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee, and this week I had the absolute pleasure to talk with Dr. G.K. Beale, who wrote the book, We Become What We Worship. The book is a biblical theology of idolatry specifically, but as we talked, it's sort of a principle that you can apply to all of life and has a lot of wise and prudent practicals to it. So I'm really excited to talk with him. I'm really excited to talk about this particular principle. One book off the Canon Press shelf that came to mind as not only as we were talking, but as I prepped for this interview was Peter Lighthart's A House for My Name, A Survey of the Old Testament. This is one of my favorite books at Canon Press. It's a survey of the Old Testament, which is not necessarily the same as a biblical theology, like what we talked about with Professor Beale. But in this short and readable book, Peter Lightheart gives us sweeping overview of the Bible, its stories and patterns and symbols that recur throughout it, highlighting the ways many of the little stories look forward to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus himself. I highly recommend it. I think part of talking with Professor Beale, thinking about Peter's book, is that essentially to part of the Christian life is becoming better readers, better readers of the Old Testament and better readers of our lives. How are we doing in sanctification? Are we playing the wrong part? Are we being the bad guy? Are we self-deceived? Are my likes and wants conforming me to an image that isn't like Jesus? All those questions I think can be answered when we focused on Jesus Christ, are becoming better readers, not only of his word, but our own lives. So without further ado, please meet Dr. G.K. Beale. All right, now welcoming on Reverend Dr. Gregory K. Beale. PhD at Cambridge, holds the J. Gresham Machen Chair of New Testament and Research, Professor of New Testament and Biblical Interpretation at Westminster Theological Seminary. But Dr. Beale, you tell me that is not the newest byline. You just well, moved- that, that, that is uh, still true. Okay. I become, uh, but I become a, uh, a new faculty member at Reformed Theological Seminary in Dallas on June 1. Awesome. So I am still uh, okay. <laughs> at Westminster until then. Okay, so I, I snuck it in, you know, one month to go on that byline. So That's right, good. <laughs> I want to thank you for coming in today. We're talking about your book, We Become What We Worship. Thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here. Now, in that book, you have a thesis, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. Could you Tell us about how you sort of stumbled into that kind of thesis. Well, I was preparing a sermon for a chapel at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary back around 1986, a long time ago. Yeah. And um, so I decided I was going to preach on Isaiah 6 and especially the last verses, verses 9 to 13. and it, speaks of Israel there, and it says that they have eyes but can't see and ears but can't hear. And I I found a parallel passage to that in Psalm 115 and and Psalm 135, which says the idols of the nations are gold and silver. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have a heart, but they can't understand. Those who make them will become like them, even those who worship them 
will become like them. And so I realized that what was going on in Isaiah was the reason they were said to be people who had eyes but couldn't see and ears but couldn't hear was because actually they were becoming like the idols they worshipped. God had, uh, through his prophets, been rebuking Israel for many generations up to that point, telling them to stop their idol worship and to repent and trust in him. The majority of the nation refused to do that. And so now we come to a point in Israel's history where there's sort of a a semi-zenith point. It's not the final zenith point of judgment that comes with Jesus, but there's a a semi-zenith point, uh, a penultimate point, if you want to call it, in which God says, okay, you like idols? All right, you're not repenting? Then I'm going to judge you by causing you to become like the idols you worship. Of course, they didn't become petrified stone or wood idols. Uh, The point was that they would become, their judgment was that because they loved their idols that were spiritually lifeless, spiritually inanimate, God was going to judge them by making them increasingly spiritually inanimate and devoid of the spirit. So that's what really launched the book, actually. In fact, the first chapter in the book after the introduction is Isaiah 6. And and then I I decided there was actually a biblical theology of idolatry. And that biblical theology was that what you revere, you resemble. Either for ruin, if it's the idols, you'll become lifeless like them. Or if it's the Lord, then you will become like the Lord and reflect him. Uh, in a way that Adam originally should have. And of course, um, that ultimately only comes with Jesus Christ when you trust in him. He died and rose again, and you become conformed to his image. Now, you, you just mentioned there, there was, you, you felt like there was a biblical theology to sort of chase this down throughout the rest of the text of Scripture. I had a question here about asking you what particular discipline of Bible theology were you using? You called it biblical theology. Could you tell us a little bit about that discipline? Yeah. um, Biblical theology, which is different from systematic theology, and that systematic theology will trace themes across the whole Bible. So if you want to look at love, you know, you could start with Genesis 1 and see what the Bible says about love throughout its cross-section. Right. And, and then you organize those statements about love in a, in a systematic way. Maybe God unconditionally loves, and God loves people who are sinful. God's love is immutable, and so on. You, you can organize that systematically, whereas biblical theology traces the development of supernatural revelation in its diversity and its uniformity. And so, for example, I compare an idea in biblical theology, the way you would trace it, let's say something starts, let's say the idea of the temple starts in, actually, I believe in Genesis 1 to 2 and okay. 3. Okay. And so, that's, that's, like, that's like an apple seed. Right. And then the, the idea of the temple continues to develop throughout the whole Old Testament. And so you begin to see that apple seed, it begins to grow, let's say, into a small tree. Then when you get to the New Testament, uh, Jesus and the church is the temple, that that becomes a big tree 
a big apple tree. And then the very end of time, you have apples on the apple tree that are ready to be harvested. So there's that, that that's what I mean. There's an organic right. continuity of many different ideas all the way from Genesis to the end of the book of Revelation. And that's the case with idolatry. You begin to get idolatry in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve, Adam himself, actually begins to resemble the serpent. The serpent was deceptive and was a liar. So when Adam is confronted with his sin, he tries to push this off on Eve. And then uh, Eve tries to push it off on the serpent. So they become not truth tellers at that point. They begin to resemble the serpent, who actually, they, be, they shift their allegiance to the serpent and begin to resemble him. And then that idea is developed. So if you wanted to do a biblical theological interpretation of Isaiah 6, what you would do is you would try to understand it in the context of the book. Right. Chapters 1 through 5 talk about idolatry and how Israel did it. And then 6 says, okay, you're going to be judged. And then the book of Isaiah actually portrays their judgment. And then in chapters 40 to 66 portrays a time in which those who have eyes that can't see and ears that can't hear, which is Israel, there's going to come a time when God is going to give a remnant of the people eyes so they can see, ears so they can hear. There'll, there'll be a time in the latter days, which begins with Jesus. Sure. He begins to give the people the spiritual sight. And so that, that's how it's developed later in Isaiah and in the prophets in the New Testament. But also you want to see not only how Isaiah 6 relates to its following epics later in the old and then in the new, but also preceding epics. So, for example, even that phrase, they had eyes that couldn't see. So I'm going to give you eyes which you can't see, ears which can't hear. Uh, that actually comes from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 29 and, and verse 6 where the first generation did not have eyes, or they had eyes but they couldn't see and ears but couldn't hear. And so what really, so Isaiah is alluding back to the first generation and saying, you know, the present generation of Isaiah is just the same as the first. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, to continue to use that analogy. That's right. And, uh, and so they're, they're, they're just as wicked, they're just as idolatrous as that first generation. And they become like the idols uh, that they revere, just like the first generation. Remember the first generation, Moses describes them uh, after the golden calf episode in uh, Exodus 32. Right. He says that they had become stiff-necked and they had gone astray. They needed to be regathered and led again at the gate. Well, those are those are cattle metaphors. Why, why are they described as cattle in the Golden Calf episode? Because they'd become like the calf. Right. And not that they'd become a petrified golden calf, but they had become as spiritually lifeless as that calf. So that the actual idea of becoming what you revere or you, re, you revere and then become what you revere begins actually with the first generation of Israel and, and, and actually with Adam. So one thing that I found that was really fascinating, I mean, even as you start this project out, so you started with Isaiah 6, and if you wanted to prove that this, you know, is is latent through the, the text of the scripture, you know, someone might hear that and just think like, okay, I'll just look through eyes and ears all throughout the, the text, and there you have it. But that's not quite the evidence that you bring 
for us. You, you, uh, you've already started to mention a few examples like the golden calf. I'm curious, are there any points of, interp- of interpretive tension in the Old Testament that you found that this dynamic actually helped flesh and smooth that seeming tension out? If you're asking that, is this principle of becoming like what you worship true beyond the usage of having eyes but not seeing and ears but not hearing? Yes, it is. And, and we saw that with the golden calf. Yeah, right. And, and there are other conceptual ways that, that is, it, it is expressed, for example, in the book of Revelation, the number on the head of people, which is the number of the beast, the, the point of that is to say, they have the character of the beast that they worship. When you take on someone's name, you take on their character. So that, that would be another example. But I don't know if you want to refine your question. Yeah, further so than- I was just curious, are there, so aside from that, are there seemingly interpretive tensions like, well, I'm not, you know, this dynamic of you, you are what you revere for ruin or restoration. Are there any places in the Old Testament that you thought this principle smooths out seeming tensions that were in the text or, you know, this actually helped bring to light and make this text easier to read, things of that nature? Yeah, I mean, I do think it's a lens. Sure. It's an interpretive lens through, through which can make the details of Scripture clearer. And, and I think a classic case is Isaiah 6. Right. Most people read Isaiah 6, and that, that text that says, you have ears, you know, can't hear, eyes can't see, or God's going to give you that. Don't think of idolatry. In fact, some scholars have disagreed with me because they say, you know, idolatry is not mentioned there. Well, they're making the word concept mistake. You don't have to have the words to have the concept. Right. For example, in Genesis 1 to 3, the word temple is not used. But I think it's highly probable that uh, Eden was a garden temple. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the reasons for that. I sure. explain that in my Temple and Church's mission book. But so, yes, and again, I mean, you, you would never think that Israel was becoming like the golden calf unless you were very sensitive to the the cow language that's applied to Israel in their in right. their sin. Right. You had that plan. So so you're not going to see this principle unless you you sort of already um understand it. And then you can apply it and use it to other texts as well. Now one thing that uh even as I I've spoken with your thesis with other people, the term worship can sort of give a connotation of either what folks do on Sunday mornings or, you know, even more of a creepier connotation is, you know, a closet of shrines, something of that nature. Your book proposes, at least in reference to the title, that it, it's something even more subtle than that. Can you go into what you mean when, when you say revere or worship? For right. Us? Basically, the idea is I'm not just talking about, you know, worship service or, you know, an idolatrous worship service. For example, like in the Golden Calf, right? But even Israel later is compared to a calf, just in her general idolatry. But the idea applied broader than that, and especially you see it in the New Testament, and and that is you see the positive side of it in Romans twelve two. Do not be conformed to the world. So there you've got the negative. Do not be conformed to the world. One translation is more interpreted. It says, do not be put into the mold of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think in Scripture, 
by the running of your mind so you may prove what is good and uh, acceptable and complete. So, yeah, this has to do with just our basic life commitments. Hmm. If you are committed to the Lord more than anything else, then you will slowly, perhaps, but surely become like God, conformed to Christ. Or if you're, if you're not, if there's something else that's a higher priority for you, maybe it's money, maybe it is a mate, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a hobby, whatever it may be. If you're more committed to that than to God, if that's in the center of your life and God maybe is on the periphery in some way, then, then you'll, you'll become like that which you are committed to. And generally what that means is you will become lifeless. And what this means also is that Christians can be partial idolaters. This actually is a concept of sanctification. Sanctification from this perspective, one could say, is growing out of our idolatry and becoming increasingly conformed to Christ. It seems to be a really chilling and horrifying principle that you've uncovered (laughs) in that someone going down that road, self-deception seems to play a big role here to some degree and how someone might be able to pull themselves out of something. You know, I, I imagine that the Israelites worshiping the calf were quite earnest. They identified what they were worshiping as as the thing that brought them out of Egypt. Yeah. So you can imagine there were some zealots there who I don't know, there was there was a sense of genuine earnestness about what they were doing. You know, sometimes we can have a sort of when we read about them in scripture, the Israelites, they're other, and they were like eerily worshiping little wood instruments. And like, how weird is that? We'd never do that. Did you feel the same way as you wrote this? I mean, is there a sense of uh, this could be the most terrifying news in the world? But also, of course, you have the other flip side of the coin about the the restoration side. Well, I think that, you know, again, if you think about that uh, passage in Romans 12, too, if you're in the mold of the world, there is no way you can get out of that mold. Right. Uh, there's no way you cannot become like the world, conform to it, unless God grabs you and takes you out of it. Just as Paul says, he was on the Damascus Road, was basically grabbed by Christ. Right. So I think that what it does is it, it's just a form, a facet of depravity. There's only there's only one way that one can come out of their depravity, their enslavement to sin. And that is if the spirit renews our heart. Right. Paul says in in, in Philippians 3:12, he says, he's talking about the resurrection. He says, not that I've already obtained the resurrection or I've already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Christ grabbed him and uh, and made him a new creation, which he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. There is a new creation. Old things have passed away. The only things have come. And he's including himself in that. That's right. I'm curious, you know, as I think you even started out the book mentioning as a parent, you saw this sort of principle in action. I imagine our listeners have already called to mind things like, you know, the company you keep has an effect on you. 
Yes. There's a sense in which, you know, even as I read your book, your particular book is limited in scope to a biblical theology of idolatry. That's right. But I have to imagine that many either that have read your book, they found it helpful almost as a as a study of anthropology. This is what it is to be human. Here is the engine of desire, I suppose you could say, or did you see that to be the case? Did you have a hard time sometimes keeping this limited in scope or did you want to write another book? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of fertile soil here to run with. The reason that I wanted to keep it limited in scope is that I found hardly any studies on idolatry in the Bible. Okay. You might find a encyclopedia article, but I found hardly any. Wow. There's a, there's a Jewish book that's written by some Jewish authors and it's, it's, it's okay, but I didn't find anything. But what I did find were a lot of books on modern day idolatry. So there are a lot of books on how people worship, what, what, what are idols today? Right. Um, and, but, so that's why I wanted to do something that was a, you know, an attempt to really look at this, this principle. And of course, I'm actually only looking at a slice even indeed of idolatry because there, there are many other mentions of idolatry in the Bible sure. than what I cover. So I'm just covering that sliver uh, about idolatry that is what you revere, um, you resemble either for ruin or restoration. So, so there are, you know, there, there, there are other, probably more books could be written. So in fact, in fact, I was limiting myself to that sliver. So there's right. probably room for, for another book to be written. Now, Rick Lance has written a book on, on idolatry. It's, it's a little bit more of a somewhat of a, a systematic theology. Um, okay. I, I wrote a book review of it, I think, in Thamelia, so readers can see what I think of it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, in terms of when you saw it in your in your kids, this sort of principle to some extent, was that something you contemplated after, you know, really spending time writing this book? Or, you know, is it something all along that sort of fed into motivation for the book? Yeah, it was something that um, as I looked at the principle in the Bible. Sure. And then I look at humans and my children. <laughs> there, there's this general principle that um, what you are around, you reflect. Now, sometimes it's very neutral. I mean, you know, I talk about my little girls when they're little, they would talk on their telephones, their toy telephones, the way their mother talked on the phone. They'd cook on their toy stoves, the way their mother cooked. They would uh, feed uh, their animals medicine and the way we fed them medicine. They would discipline their animals and the way we would discipline them. Um, and so everybody's seen that with children. Right. right. And, and even we as adults, you know, I mean, junior high, high school, maybe college, um, people wear um, polo ponies on their shirts. And they want they want a, a Ralph Lauren <laughs> shirt because the, everybody else has it. Right. If you're an athlete, you to become a part of the athletic group, you got to be an athlete. You got to be like that group. Yep. And some people, unfortunately, they want to become parts of groups that are not good. Like some people become part of uh, drug groups. They'll reflect the group by right. taking the drugs. Right. And so on. So you you see this and many, many different ways. So probably, you know, you could you could write a book on, on, on how people resemble what they're around. I mean, you even find, you know, fathers taking their children to football games and both the father and the child have the team 
the, you know, the Dallas Cowboy uniform and helmet on. So <laughs> in a certain humorous way, that's just the tip of the iceberg of the principle. I agree. You know, they're, they're really committed to football. So I agree. Like the football players. Right. So some of them are somewhat humorous, but it does have a, an iceberg kind of principle to it. It's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you know, we have rock stars. We call them idols, right? Right. And, and so people who worship the idols, what are the teenagers or whoever worships them? What do they look like? Well, they have their hair in the same way, same clothing, um, maybe tattoos, same jewelry, uh, and sometimes, unfortunately, same lifestyle they imitate. Sometimes that's not a good lifestyle. I think even, and you have plenty in the book for folks when they go buy this and read it, on the restoration side, in terms of you were talking about sanctification, and that is essentially allowing God to dictate your tastes. And how do you do that? You just continually, in sanctification, worshiping God, allowing him to discipline you and teach you. That is what it is. It's God telling you what to like, what not to like. And we need that as sinners. We need to be told that there are things you don't like now as a Christian. There are things that you do like now as a Christian, etc. And I think that restoration side is also obviously it's the glorious side of that horrifying B side. You know, I think that comes, how do you become like God, practically speaking? How does he direct you, practically speaking? Well, uh, it's Romans 12, too. Yeah. Uh, not become conformed to the world, but be renewed in your mind. Well, how do you get renewed in your mind? It's through scripture. Right. So we've got to read the Bible every day and pray. We need to memorize the Bible and pray through what we memorize. That sounds pretty basic, but it's profound. And you, you hedge against this in your introduction that the title, We Become What We Worship, could lead someone to think that you become divine, which is not what you believe. But is it... Is it yeah, I, I disagreed, unfortunately. I disagreed with IVP's title. Oh, uh, interesting. We become What We Worship. And in the, I, I don't know if you remember in the introduction, I said, really, uh, the title should be, We Become Like what we worship. That's a big difference. Right. Right. One text that came to mind is a second Corinthians three in terms of us glorifying in the face of Jesus Christ. Yes. In doing so that we become like him one from one degree of glory to the next, I think yeah. is probably yeah. one of my favorite texts in relation to yeah. this principle. Right. And that's, I think that's the sanctification principle. Right. Right. Now, one of my last questions, you you're ordained in the OPC, correct? That's right. Orthodox Presbyterian Church. You've kind of already mentioned the ways in which this principle is helpful for parenting, or at least you see it revealed in parenting. Are there other ways in which you see that maybe this principle has some wise practicality to it in terms of a pastor or parents, just in the, in the shepherding of the sheep? Well, again... I think in so many ways, when one concludes a sermon, often one of the best applications is, are you reading your Bible every day? Yep. Are you coming to God's Word? There's only one way to be transformed to the image of Christ, and that is to think His thoughts after Him. And there's only one way to think Christ's thoughts or God's thoughts after Him. And that's to be exposed to his thoughts, to be saturated with his thoughts. So in terms of the transformative principle, that's it. Now, in terms of 
warning, you know, for example, I mean, ironically, for example, I'm just uh, in a new home and I'm remodeling a game room into a big library. <laughs> and my, my temptation is to be committed to my books sometimes and not what I read. And just, oh, look at this marvelous library. Or maybe even it's just the knowledge in the books. And you can be committed to, you know, what the books say about the Bible and not personally know God. There right. are a lot, of, there are a lot there. I'm not going to say a lot, but there are a significant amount of biblical scholars who are not Christians, which is very interesting. Yep. Yep. They're, they're not committed. You know, there's a story about uh, some soldiers at the very end of World War II. I think it may have been in Berlin, but it was one of the German cities toward the end of the war. They were trying to take over a part of a town still occupied by the German soldiers. And so there were about, I think, 10 of them. And the night before, they had to remember and memorize exactly where they were going to be the next day to successfully execute their takeover. And so they had to, some had to be in certain alleyways, at certain streets, at certain buildings at a certain time, certain times. And from the smartest to the least smart, from the captain to the private, they all had to learn this. They had to memorize it. And there was a map. They had to memorize that map. If they didn't memorize that map, their life was on the line. Right. And so the next day, they carried out their uh, mission flawlessly. Why? That map was imprinted on their minds. And so about two years later, after the war, they tried a little experiment. They, they took a town. And they took the same amount of soldiers and says, okay, we're going to have a mock takeover of part of this town. And so you have to learn this map, same kind of thing. And so they had one night to learn the map. The next day they were to execute the plan and they miserably failed. What's the difference? Their life was not on the line. And I think we as believers don't think our life is on the line with regard to scripture. We just don't believe that. Yep. So, well, I don't really need to read the Bible much. <laughs> so, my life's not on the We don't believe that. Uh, and one of the best things I think you could read with regard to that is John Owen's The Mortification of Sin. He says, this is a different angle now. But he says, if you are not constantly battling sin, it will battle and conquer you. And we sometimes think that, well, I'm growing in the Lord. And I kind of sit back with regard to my sin. I don't need to be perhaps as sensitive to my sin. I'm growing. And if you begin to think that way, then you're not going to be on your toes to uh, put sin to death. Amen. Amen. Dr. Beal, thank you so much for being with us today, talking about your book. Where do you recommend Amazon? Is there a place in particular you want them to go get that book? Well, I'll tell you where they can go. Yeah. To initially click on the book. And that is to gkbeal.com. Perfect. We have a, a new website. Awesome. And uh, uh, I have a TA who is kind of an IT person. He created this about a month ago, but it has all my books there that are and they're pictured. And if you want to buy one of them, you can just click on it there, gkbeal.com. Awesome. And there also is a book there about the temple that you, you sort of went into a little bit. And That's right. it really is phenomenal. So Go check that out at gkbeal.com, correct? 
That's right. And there I have a, I actually have a course on the use of the Old Testament and the New there that you can listen to. I also have a course on the New Testament biblical theology. Perfect. And it's all at gkbeal.com. Head over there. Thank you so much, Professor Beal. All right. Cheers. Cheers. 